everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by RunZero, the company formerly known as Rumble Network Discovery, and its founding CTO, HD Moore, will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about uh, what he's been up to, which is always interesting uh, when you ask HD, what have you been up to lately? You always get a good answer. Uh, That is coming up later. But first up, of course, it's time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau and also our special guest co-host this week, Dmitry Alperovich, the one-time founder of CrowdStrike turned geopolitics think tank guy. Welcome to both of you. Hi there, Pat. Thank you. All right, so we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about this week. Um, I guess where I want to start is with all of this Joe Sullivan stuff, right? Former CISO of uh, Uber, uh, who has been found guilty for obstruction. Uh, just one note, though, uh, Paige Thompson, another another person who uh, faced some DOJ uh, action. Paige Thompson, the Capital One hacker, has actually uh, been sentenced to time served, so will not be going to prison, which I'm sure is a huge relief to her and, um, and those close to her because... Yeah, looking was looking down the barrel of some serious time there, but that's uh, that's worked out for her. Uh, Joe Sullivan yet to be sentenced, but uh, found guilty on a on a whole bunch of charges. The reaction to this does seem a bit overwrought, with everyone saying they're criminalizing normal CISO activity and stuff. And I, I don't know that normal CISOing includes like obstruction of justice. Yeah, and I saw one article that says that this is CISO scapegoating. And for God's sakes, this has nothing to do with him being a CISO. This has everything to do with him trying to cover up from federal regulators, the FTC in this particular case, uh, what has truly been going on and that there was truly a hack and not a bug bounty program as he had claimed. So, uh, you know, any executive in that position, whether you're a CISO, a CIO, a CEO, a CFO, whomever, would have run into these issues. And uh, obviously they didn't charge Travis in this situation, perhaps because they didn't have enough evidence on him. And it does look like uh, Joe may have been the fall guy here and it's very unfortunate. Uh, but you know, you shouldn't be lying to the feds is the bottom line, uh, no matter what role you're in. Yeah, I mean, they went, they went, they clearly went after the senior most person that they could actually secure a conviction for. And I mean, even the guy, the the lawyer at Uber who who advised Joe Sullivan that this was all honky dory and going to be fine, uh, actually wound up testifying against him. Uh, but that you know, even if he got bad legal advice, Joe Sullivan is a former DOJ prosecutor. He should have known better and probably did know better. I guess is what the DOJ argued here. That's right. And, and it probably is the case that DOJ went after him so hard because he's a former prosecutor and they felt like he should know better. And it's very tragic, you know, anytime, you know, it looks like he may go to jail. We'll see what the sentencing is like. And, um, you know, as a former prosecutor, you do not want to end up in jail. Hopefully he'll be okay. I don't know him well, but uh, I think I met him a couple of times and he seemed like a nice guy. So tragic situation, but really nothing to do with him being a CISO. Now, Adam, you'd remember that when all of this kicked up, we actually wound up getting some pretty good info on it. We had a few sources sort of come forward and, and talk to us about what had really happened. And, and it was a fascinating story, really, where they'd had this breach and someone was trying to shake them down. And really what they what they did is they said, sure, we'll pay you, but we need your identity information if we're going to pay you, right? And that's how they essentially doxed this guy because he was so greedy that, you know, uh, he, he, he gave up his, his, his details to get the payment. And then they actually wound up physically tracking the guy down and saying, look, you know, here's an NDA. And if you ever do anything like, you know, we know who you are, we'll go to the FBI. And, you know, for, for some of the people involved in that, they thought, look, we'll keep this guy out of prison for being an idiot, which... I don't know, it was a great strategy considering he'd been doing it to other companies, right? Uh, but that was their thinking, which is, um, you know, keep this guy out of prison, get the data deleted, no harm, no foul. But I don't know if you remember, but I said at the time, that's all well and good, but they sh- still should have told regulators, right? Like that was our gut reaction at the time all of this first surfaced. And it really looks like that's what's caused him the most legal trouble here. Yeah, it did seem a bit of a contentious, uh, you know, strategy to take at the time. And, you know, I know when when we talked about it, it was a, I mean, you know, bug bounties, even I mean, we're talking six years ago. And, you know, the, the world of bug bounties and the world of paying ransoms to criminals, you know, was different back then. But even then, it still seemed like a bad strategy uh and you can see you know when you see this the story played out in the in the reporting here you know of uh, you know the regulation and the investigations they were under at the time you can kind of see how it might have seemed like a good option then but 
clearly it's not. And, you know, I think a lot of the hand-wringing we've seen, you know, uh, interpreting this as a, a thing that all CISOs need to be scared of and aware of is because people in those positions are, you know, do feel uncertainty about some of the things they have to do and what responsibility they might end up taking. And so I think, you know, there's just a lot of anxiety, I think, around all the terrible things that people in the security industry see and how much of it doesn't come to light to the public, to customers, to regulators. Well, I think, you know, the, the anxiety here is rooted in a couple of things, right? First of all, there's people saying, well, what happens if we're put in a position where we have to pay some sort of ransom or pay off to a hacker, right? Like, are we going to wind up being imprisoned? Uh, and the, the other thing that's making people anxious is, of course, the CEO and the legal counsel and everyone else skated, right? And, and they just went after the CISO. But like, as we've already established, him being a former prosecutor... Uh, you know, engaged in something that DOJ sees as, as, as shady, like that's a red rag to a bull uh, right there. And again, the issue I don't think so much was the payoff. It was the failure to report it to regulators, the failure to report it to the FBI, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Dimitri, you had something to add there. I think one of the things that this is an indication of is that people are just now coming to terms that CISOs are finally in the C-suite. And right for a long time, people said, we should talk about security in the C-suite. But, you know, one of the downsides of being in the C-suite is you're going to come under a lot of pressure from executives. Uh, and the CFOs, the general counsels know it very well because they've been dealing with these situations for decades where, you know, the executives want certain information presented, certain actions taken, and it takes a lot of fortitude to say, no, this is illegal, this is not going to be done. And CISOs have to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder if we'll ever hear from uh, Joe Sullivan himself uh, about this one day. It'd be interesting to get his, you know, his story to see how he was sort of interpreting events as they unfolded, right? Because you can almost see how this could unfold in this way, even if you had good intentions. But yeah, well, clearly the DOJ don't, don't think he had good intentions here. Let's just say that. I, I guess an, a conviction for obstruction does send that message. Yeah. Indeed, indeed, indeed. All right, so we're going to talk about something uh, that's a little bit like cyber adjacent now. Uh, and that's one of the reasons Dimitri's, Dimitri's here is because I know this is a topic that you've been tracking very closely for quite a long time, right? Which is the topic of semiconductors. Now, the reason, like, we'll get there, everyone. Don't worry. There is sort of uh, uh, relevance to security uh, in this topic, but it'll take us a minute to get there. Dimitri, the US government is taking action against Chinese chip makers and also Chinese companies doing sort of cutting edge machine learning based stuff and AI based stuff. But a lot of it comes back to restricting the sale of the technology, American technology to Chinese companies that would allow them to manufacture cutting edge chips, right? So why don't you tell us a little bit about why this is being done and what sort of impact it's going to have on, on the Chinese tech ecosystem? This is literally an equivalent of an earthquake that's taking place in terms of the overall China relationship, the semiconductor industry more specifically. And most people do not fully appreciate the extent of what the Biden administration has done when it released those export control, control rules on Friday. This is practically complete decoupling uh, from the Chinese semiconductor industry. It is 140 pages of very dense rulemaking material that targets both the chip makers, the chip design firms, universities doing research. It also targets the chip, manuf uh, chip tool manufacturers in China. It is literally uh, a target on, uh, on the back of the entire sector um, that the Chinese have been labeling as one of their most strategic sectors for uh, well over a decade now. President Xi has said that he has this as part of the 2025, made in China 2025 goals to achieve chip independence. Um, this is not going to be attainable. It really never was attainable um, even before this action. But with this action, it's going to push the Chinese um, developments in this uh, field by a decade, if not more. And what's really interesting is that this is not just about the advanced chips. Um, you know, the regulations sort of talk a lot about 16 nanometers and below, focusing on AI, focusing on supercomputing, the types of tools that you can use for wep uh, weapons of mass destruction development, particularly testing of nuclear weapons. But the way the rules are written is a little bit sneaky because in many cases, you have technology, uh, equipment technology, that uh, is used in both advanced processes below 16 nanometers and also more mature nodes like 28 nanometer logic, for example, um, or 20 nanometer DRAM, 
uh, processes. And that could also be banned because it's kind of dual use. You can use it for advanced, you can use it for less advanced. So uh, we're basically freezing Chinese development across a whole slew of nodes uh, in the chip making space. And that's going to have huge ramifications. Uh, the most immediate ones are probably for Apple that has been considering using the Chinese uh, chip, uh, memory chip maker YMMC uh, for their iPhones, uh, at least in China, as, as I've, uh, Apple has claimed. But that's going to be very difficult. YMC is actually named specifically uh, in the in the in these export control rules. They have a huge target on their back. And if I were Apple, I'd be seriously rethinking um, uh, my uh, my future use of uh, uh, of that vendor. And and I'm sure they are over in Cupertino. Okay, okay, but let's let's get to the why. Why is the United States government doing this? Is it just because it doesn't want China to have nice things? Like, what's the what's the go here, Dimitri? So as we've seen over the last couple of years, uh, in the midst of our overall chip shortage, chips are in everything. They're critical. Um, the export controls on Russia for, for uh, imports of chips uh, has been uh, probably the most effective tool that we've used to punish Russia uh, for their invasion of Ukraine. And the goal here is really to make sure that China remains dependent on the import of Western-produced chips, both from Taiwan and elsewhere, United States, uh, Europe, etc., and uh, the theory is that uh, this can be part of the overall deterrence of a potential invasion of Taiwan, that if China is as dependent as Russia was on Western chips, if it does not have its own manufacturing industry, uh, it's going to be perhaps a little less likely to invade Taiwan. I mean, isn't there an argument to be had that, well, okay, if we just take over Taiwan, we get all of their chip industry, because there's so much semiconductor manufacturing in Taiwan, you know, if you control that territory, you control the industry, basically, because ah. the United States cannot decouple from Taiwan. The United States can't just say, oh, well, we're not going to buy chips from Taiwan anymore, because China has invaded it and taken it over. Like, that's just not realistic. So I will tell you, Patrick, there's a lot of talk among the national security community here in DC that in the case of an invasion, if those fabs don't get destroyed just through natural um, uh, military actions, because by the way, if you turn off the power to those fabs, you you know impact the process. You probably freeze uh, production of existing chips and and delay any actions in those fabs for at least a year at a minimum, just as natural course of waging war. But even if that doesn't happen. Um, there is serious consideration for the United States to potentially destroy those fabs remotely if there's going to be a, any sort of uh, inkling that China may get them. So this is like mutually assured destruction semiconductor edition, right? Like, which is, which is pretty interesting. But like, if you did erase the supply of semiconductors from Taiwan, that's going to cause all sorts of drama. I mean, you know, Toyota can barely build enough cars as it is due to semiconductor shortages. You know, you go, <laughs> you, you go and bomb a few chip fabs in, uh, in Taipei, and I can't imagine that, you know, the world economy is going to improve. So the White House has done some analysis on this, and their estimate is that if Taiwan goes offline, if TSMC and other manufacturers in Taiwan go offline, it will cause at least $1 trillion, T, trillion dollars, of damage to the world economy. So this is not going to be cheap. But as we've seen with Ukraine, economic considerations seem secondary. Uh, yeah. And, you know, once you have dead babies in the street, when it's, once you have an atrocity of an invasion, um, you know, you can wait a lot for your people... new Toyota. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like um, economics is downstream of politics. Uh, well, it should be, as it should be, right? Uh, but I guess the reason I wanted to talk to you about this. Uh, you know, in an InfoSec podcast is because I feel like we're at a bit of a turning point again uh, with the, you know, China-West relations. And I figure these restrictions, this regime is going to really incentivize a lot of IP theft, right? Like, what do you think about that? I'm thinking if I'm running anything to do with advanced semis, you know, I, I've already had to deal uh, with the China APT threat, but I figure they're going to redouble their efforts and they're really going to target this sector. Or do you think that it's not necessarily so? No, you're absolutely right. And the key part of the sector that they're going to target with even more vengeance, if you will, is going to be the equipment manufacturers. ASML, yes. Applied Materials, LAM, Tokyo Electric, some of the big companies that manufacture the equipment that you need to produce chips, and, and they're primarily in three countries, the United States, Netherlands, and Japan. Um, those are the companies whose IP China has been desperately trying to reproduce so that they are not going to be subject um, to these export control rules and, and be impacted as they are today. They've been unsuccessful so far. You know, it's one thing to steal IP. It's another thing to actually be able to replicate some of the most complicated machine that man has ever built. 
Um, and uh, it, it's a lot more than just stealing schematics um, to make Well, I mean, there's a lot work. of material science in there as well. Like there's an entire supply chain that goes into making machinery that's that complicated. Exactly, exactly. Most of these vendors have thousands of suppliers. So for example, for SML, they need these really sophisticated mirrors that come from a company in Germany. So it's not just, you know, here I stole a bunch of schematics and uh, off we go, rolling off these machines of, uh, off the production line. It's not software, it's hardware. And hardware is really tricky to reproduce. And you've seen a few of these industries where China has really struggled. Semiconductors has been one, and uh, jet engines has been another. They still don't have a good uh, jet engine. They're still relying on jet engines from Russia, in some cases even the United States, uh, despite all of the IP theft that we witnessed in that sector as well. This is really, really hard stuff. Yeah, but I mean, I, I guess I guess the thing is, we can expect to see a redoubling of efforts all up and down that supply chain. As we've and as we've just established, that supply chain touches a lot of areas. Absolutely. Yeah, Adam, what do you make of all of this? I mean, I think I would expect certainly more cyber coming along the lines because of this. And I wonder, you know, this is quite a big stick for the the Biden administration to to wave, and it makes me wonder what the next move from China would be to you know proportionally respond and. You know that cyber is a natural place for that to to happen in some way. So I mean, either way, it cranks up the risk profiles and it you know cranks up the tensions. You know, in what I guess has become the you know the second Cold War. The one silver lining here, guys, is that no chips, no cyber. Yeah, mm. we can all go home and uh, <laughs> chill. Right? That sounds awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Now, look, uh, we got a little bit more uh, to talk about when it comes to China here. Of course, the big, you know, party congress has come up where uh, Xi is expected to be, you know, sworn in as uh, as leader for life uh, sort of thing, right? So there's well, a bit of a crackdown. We're all dying to find out what actually happens, right? Yeah, that's the election it. hasn't just yet like, happened. Don't assume, Patrick. Don't assume. <laughs> just like the referendums in uh, occupied Ukraine, you know? Like, I think when they were happening, Dimitri, I was uh, texting you on uh, Signal asking you if they had uh, projections yet and where we could tune in <laughs> for the count. Um <laughs> But yeah, we got it. We got a story here from TechCrunch, and this this actually ties in pretty nicely to some stuff we spoke about last week, Adam. And I did want to read uh, touch on that again. But we spoke about how there was a YouTube video, a Chinese language YouTube video, uh, on how to use Tor, and linked from that YouTube video was a subverted version of Tor that would uh, had malware in it that would only activate within Chinese IP space that would like you know basically send the IP address and identifying system information off to the MSS or whatever. But then when I was editing that show, I'm like, hang on, that doesn't make sense because YouTube is already banned in China. So what's the go? I actually wound up reaching out to AJ Vicenz. I saw Lorenzo um, from Vice was also asking the same question of the researchers who actually uh, put out this work. And the thinking seems to be that what they were doing was targeting Chinese VPN users who were using the VPNs to try to get information on how to use Tor, right? Now we see this story from TechCrunch, which says that there's a real, there, there are real efforts underway in China at the moment to clamp down or to crack down on censorship circumvention tech. And the thinking is that this is ahead of the party congress. Yeah, this this makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're all constantly playing whack-a-mole uh, with options for circumventing the Great Firewall uh, and, you know, going after smaller and smaller. You know, blocking tour makes sense, but, you know, there's many, many uh, options for VPNs and, yeah, the smaller that uh, they are, the more likely they are to survive. And, yeah, we've seen some, you know, pretty obscure ones start to stop functioning. Plus, also, you know, there's a lot of options for fingerprinting TLS uh, you know, from the outside and other things um, that you know they've spent a lot of time looking at. So, kind of makes sense when they've got a you know important event coming up that they're going to make some of those go away. Well, and just to give people an idea of how important this uh, coronation is, uh, apparently steel mills in the area have been told to cut production so that they will have cleaner air for the party congress, right? Which actually was a big enough production cut to cause the price, the spot price of iron ore, to move. Wow. Yeah. China's a hell of a place like that. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it almost seems like it's from a book, you know, when you read, you know, you, you hear about things like that, but hey, no, it's the reality we're in. Now, uh, we do have one more China item to talk about, which is the, um, uh, the NSA and CISA and the FBI have actually put out a uh, bulletin talking about the top 20 bugs that are being used by Chinese APT crews at the moment, which is, yeah, a useful list. Uh, but it is interesting that they're seeing enough activity at the moment to actually put out a bulletin. Um, the thinking seems to be that, yeah, China is already going a little bit feral at the moment with its um, APT activity. And um, yeah, that's why we're seeing this bulletin. What, what did you make of this one, Dimitri? 
Well, I, I had a meme that I tweeted on this that uh, here you have NSA ex exposing 20 of the top CVs that various uh, Chinese actors are using and how to mitigate against them. And Chinese response uh, that we've seen over the last couple of months has been, oh, my God, Rob Joyce was chief of TO. Um, so yeah. it's, uh, it's quite an <laughs> uneven fight that's going on here. Although, in, in fairness, I have to say that uh, it's always interesting to have these lists come up, um, and it's obviously going to rattle the Chinese some about the level of um, information that we have on, on their operations. But when you look through that CVE list, it's virtually exclusively remote execution uh, CVEs. So um, if, if the goal here is to tell people, oh, these are really the CVs you should pay attention to, I mean, if people didn't already know that, um, I'm pretty sure that this is not going to help them to patch <laughs> yeah, this any I know. faster. I, I noticed the, the second one on the list is the Pulse Secure bug from 2019. <laughs> yeah. And you yeah. just sort of think, oh, really? Uh, anyway, now we're going to talk about some Russia stuff. And, uh, you know, Adam, you and I have spoken a few times about how, uh, you know, uh, networks, IP networks and cell networks have become really sort of important uh, uh, soft power mechanisms and also about how they've become very significant in a military sense. Uh, the Ukrainians have been, been making great use of the SpaceX Starlink, uh, you know, uh, satellite internet service uh, on the battlefield. We're seeing reports, though, that Starlink has turned off service along the front line, particularly in areas where it looks like Ukraine is is doing quite well. And we've also seen some really weird comments from Elon Musk where he's like tweeting out his peace plan for the Russia-Ukraine war, which seems to be along the lines of like, we should just let Russia have it. Pretty poor showing uh, from him. But we're not really sure, like at this point, like why these service interruptions are happening. There's been some suggestion that the front line is moving too quickly and, and, and Starlink is restricting service over Russian controlled areas because they don't want Russians using the service. But then we've seen other people saying, oh, no, no, this is because Starlink is only to be used for humanitarian uh, humanitarian efforts and like no one really knows what's going on here. Dimitri, I know this is one that you've been following closely. What's going on with Starlink in Ukraine? Yeah, so as you know, Patrick, I've been following this war pretty closely. I've not had much sleep in the last uh, eight months here and you've been helping me out immensely with my own podcast on, the, on this issue, Geopolitics Decanted. And I start, first started getting an inkling about a week ago that um, things were really off in Ukraine on the front lines with Starlink getting turned off. It seems that it's not related to Russian activity. Uh, it's not, as some people have suggested, electronic warfare finally working against Starlink and shutting down Starlink sing signals. Um, the Ukrainians are getting very concerned because they've been getting very dependent on Starlink uh, for their offensive operations and integrating deeply into their military. Uh, for communications and the ISR and plenty of other things. And I actually tweeted at Elon Musk, uh, what, I guess, five days ago or so, um, hey, Elon, what's going on? Are you actually turning it off? Um, is a SpaceX doing? He still hasn't responded. And, and I, will say, I will say here that the first public utterance that something was up with Starlink was actually your tweet. And then I think within about 12 hours, there was a Financial Times article up about it along, this, along the same lines. But yeah, you kind of broke that as a, as a story. Yeah, and we still don't know why it's going on. Elon has refused to say anything about it. He claims that anything related to the battlefield is classified, uh, which is a peculiar thing to say. Um, I'm not sure that uh, with given his primary drug use that he has a clearance. Um, uh, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure what, uh, what he's actually referring to, but uh, I hope this gets resolved soon because guys, in all seriousness here, people are dying because of this unavailability. Uh, this is impacting Ukraine's operations. It's very serious. So I hope Elon um, uh, tells the world what's, what's actually going on if he's deliberately doing this. See, I wonder if he blinked, right? Because when he first started making this stuff available in Ukraine, now you would remember this, Adam. I said it on the show. I said, I don't think, this, I don't think he understands what he's doing here. You know, I don't think he understands the degree to which this is going to heat things up 
for Starlink and turn them into a target, right? Like I, I said this and people said, oh no, Patrick, don't be silly. You know, Starlink is sold to militaries. It's half a civilian service and half a military service and he absolutely knows what he's doing. But now it looks like it's like, oh no, well, we only want it used for civilian purposes in, in this conflict. And I sort of wonder if it's possible that Russia has indicated to him that he's going to have some drama if he keeps allowing uh, the Ukraine military to, to use this along the front line. I mean, what, what's your sense of it, Adam, uh, out of all of this? Because it just the whole thing is just so strange. Yeah, I mean, the blending of, of civilian and military technology, you know, in terms of the supply chain stuff we were talking about, uh, in terms of communications infrastructure and now space infrastructure, you know, it's a thing that, you know, is kind of difficult. And I know, I mean, we joked about what it must be like being, you know, security team at SpaceX, given that, you know, the cyber is probably Russia's best option for, you know, for denying service to to Starlink, you know, given the kinetic options are not so viable for them. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a it's very weird watching modern, actual modern warfare unfurl like this. And, you know, I'm sure the Chinese... Uh, you know, thinkers are, are looking at this very carefully and, and you know, taking taking it on board. Um, and yeah, I mean, making it so clearly, you know, relevant to the military conflict, uh, you know, has, it's just got to have changed it for them. And I, you know, I, I guess they're figuring it out now. They, they have done the f around and now they're in the finding out phase, I suppose. I mean, that's the sense I get, but we don't have any public indication no. that that's actually the case. And keep in mind too, that Russia is a state that doesn't seem to have any qualms about literally assassinating people in Western countries, right? So, uh, you know, a few words from a Russian official in Elon Musk's ear about like, you know, do you like being alive? Like might get him to reconsider where this service is deployed. I mean, Dimitri, I'm kind of veering into tinfoil hattery here, but you got to admit it's a realistic scenario. You know, I'll tell you this. Um, I'm not sure that we've ever had this precedent where one man and one company has such a really critical, important contribution to warfare, at least for one side of the conflict. And, uh, you know, if it is his decision to turn it off, um, that is quite historic in terms of, you know, a single individual being able to significantly impact the conflict. And I'll tell you this. Yeah, I mean, there, um, is, there is no Mr. Lockheed Martin, right? <laughs> Dave <laughs> Raytheon. Well, yeah, well, bloody and, Dave. And most of these companies, you know, obviously you have companies that provide uh, critical defense tools and weapons to U.S. militaries and other militaries around the world. But, you know, they're so embedded with those governments that they have no option to say no. Their entire business would be gone. So it's quite different from having the richest man in the world um, if he did decide to turn it off, uh, which we're speculating about. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very different situation. I'll tell you that this is not just impacting Ukraine uh, because I had discussions with some Taiwanese officials a few weeks ago, uh, long before this particular story came out, and we were talking about how they wanted my le lessons learned from Ukraine, essentially how that would apply to conflict in Taiwan. And I said, you know, one of the things that you have a problem with, guys, is that you're an island. Uh, most of your communications come from through undersea cables that China can cut in the first hours of the conflict, and uh, you're going to be essentially blind. So you need to invest in satcoms and, and um, high-frequency radios, et cetera, that you can use over long distances to at least communicate with the U.S. Um, if conflict does arise. And they actually said, well, you know, if we go to Starlink and Elon Musk has so much business in China uh, with Tesla and Gigafactors and everything else, uh, would he actually turn it off for us? And I didn't have an answer for them. And I'm afraid my answer today might be uh, not so optimistic. You would have to be a moron to procure this stuff for military use. And, you know, the Pentagon buys this stuff, right? There's already military units in the United States that have actually bought Starlink kit. And I mean, I think in the case of US military use, it's probably safe, right? But if you are a different country, you know, that doesn't have the same sort of pull, you really do wonder if this is a service that you could ever have confidence in or whether Elon would just decide he favors the other side of the war and he just turns it off. And by the way, he ha has also released a plan uh, for Taiwan and how to resolve that conflict by basically making it part of China. Yeah, buy, buy your uh, yeah, special autonomous zone. I saw that. Yeah, buy, buy your internet access from that guy uh, for sure. Adam, you had something to add there. Uh, I was just marveling at what a crazy world it is where it is one guy just choosing the course of of you know geopolitical relationship what a world like it's just but what do you think what do you think would happen right <laughs> if lockheed martin decided to geofence f-35s in a, in, a, in a conflict right like <laughs> oh boy I mean, you know like D dji style yeah. like 
you know? Yeah, no fly zone over. You no know. fly zone for the F-35s, man, because we make our batteries in that country. So you, you, we're just not going to let you use them there. you got to wonder how far you'd have to push the US government before they would be just like, fine, we're going to nationalize SpaceX, stick that in your core and smoke it. Yeah, or use the Defense Production Act or something. Yeah, like, yeah. What, what are the options there, Dimitri? How much leverage does the US government actually have over SpaceX? Uh, it's unclear because the reality is that they're a single source provider for so much. Our space lift is so dependent on him now. Obviously, we can't send anyone even to the International Space Station without SpaceX and, and the, the Dragos capsule. Uh, we're sending so much satellites up, both uh, government satellites and commercial satellites. You know, he's about to buy Twitter, for God's sake. So, you know, <laughs> uh, presumably uh, it's a roller coaster, of course, as everyone knows. But um He's got enormous power here, and uh, I don't think we have that much leverage. We have some, but um, I don't think it's as, as much as many people may think. I'd almost prefer a sinister billionaire to such a, you know, guy who's who, who just lord. seems to blow with the wind. Yeah, like a, like a meme lord idiot, you know? Anyway. <laughs> I, I predict all three of us are going to get our Twitter accounts yanked in a couple yeah. of weeks. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get suspended, right? Like if there's the opposite of a blue tick, like a red X, mm. you know? All right, so let's move on and let's talk about, uh, you know how there's all those uh, stories about mass visions of the Virgin Mary where some entire village will see the Virgin Mary. Uh, and there's sort of mass hysteria. We've got a we've got a sort of version of that happening at the moment with the media coverage of some DDoS attacks against like American regional airport brochureware websites, right? Like the Russian quote unquote hacktivist crew Killnet has been DDoSing some real like low value brochureware targets, which has resulted in just so much press coverage about the big bad Russians attacking America. Adam, what the hell is going on here? Because it does seem like, were any of these attacks at all significant or were they as I described them? Uh, they do seem to be as you describe, you know, just a uh, denial of service against the kind of public websites uh, of the airports. And, you know, I guess from the from a layperson's perspective, there isn't that much difference between you know, a brochure website and the thing that it's advertising. Uh, and so you can see how the confusion and, you know, a little bit of excitement gets uh, gets the better of everybody. But it really does just seem not not that exciting. But so many, you know, articles and, uh, you know, hand-wringing uh, about attacks on airports. But, you know, I guess, especially in America, right, we're very sensitive about, uh, about airports and travel and flight infrastructure. But it doesn't seem that exciting. You know, I generally agree with you guys, but I, I do think that there's one piece of this that, that could be quite important, and that is, you know, Mandian has been very good about releasing information that Killnet is likely uh, closely coordinating their activities with Russian intelligence services. So it begs the question of why they're doing it. I absolutely agree that this is not uh, super important and, and uh, pretty basic vandalism, but uh, if it's directed from Russian intelligence services, because it doesn't look like it's, it's done for a ransom or, you know, for pure uh, commercial benefit, criminal commercial benefit, um, it may be signaling and it may be an indication that Russia is preparing to escalate, uh, escalate their cyber activities vis-a-vis -vis the West, uh, which we haven't, actually haven't seen since the beginning of this war, right? Um, I personally thought that there'd be more of a reaction to sanctions uh, in cyberspace. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, but maybe now, as Putin is escalating things in Ukraine, this week targeting civilians with um, almost 100 missile strikes against Ukrainian uh, cities, that he may also be thinking about escalating versus the West in cyberspace. I mean, maybe, right? But I think I think that we're relying on a bit of a leap there, which is that this was state-directed. And, and while some Killnet activities might have been state-directed or, you know, they might have government handlers, it doesn't mean everything they do is state-directed. Uh, so I, I, let's put it this way. I'd be waiting for a more certain signal before considering this as a sign of Russian escalation in cyberspace. I mean, listen to me. Listen to me. Wow, Russian escalation in cyberspace. I sound like... <laughs> sound like one of them don't and, i and sure, surely the point of signaling is that you understand the signal <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's a that's a point too right um certainly but i mean you know you're over there dimitri you're actually an american so what's the what's the what's what's it has it been as in your face as it appears from outside america that these attacks have sort of been the talk of the media uh the media is getting very excited about it most people, including here in D.C., don't much care. That's actually reassuring. Now, uh, we've got an interesting initiative underway from the White House, uh, Dimitri, and it is... Actually, let's get your thoughts on this first, Adam, because this is something that we've sort of seen floated as a concept here and there, and I actually don't think it's a terrible idea. So the White House is proposing a, like, star rating 
for the security of IoT devices, right? So you go to buy your, you know, your home router or Wi-Fi kit or smart doorbell or whatever it is, and you're going to be able to see, much like an energy use star system, you're going to be able to see, oh, this thing has three and a half out of four stars uh, for security. But they, you know, as long as they base the rating system on some fundamentals, like can this thing actually receive updates and a, a few key measures there. I mean, this could actually be something that is good uh, for the IoT ecosystem, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it, Adam. Um, first off, like what, what are they basing these star ratings on? Uh, so they're assessing fairly straightforward things, you know, like does it have a business model that supports updates? Does it have, you know, remote admin? Is there a, a default credential? You know, the sorts of things that for a basic home consumer IoT device, uh, you know, are sensible metrics. You know, I know when we've talked in the past, we always end up getting, you know, kind of bogged down in, well, you know, what does it mean in context and how are you going to rate it, you know, in, you know, if so, like for enterprise or, you know, big deployments, this kind of thing is doesn't have enough specificity. Value. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I, the, the way I see this is if you see, uh, you know, if you see something on the shelf that's zero out of five, that's when you know, hey, maybe I want to avoid it, right? Like that's where I think this sort of thing can come in handy. Yeah, yes, exactly. And also it will make manufacturers, gives manufacturers a reason to compete on security because there really isn't any anything otherwise, right? I mean, the, the free market doesn't reward security, especially for cheap consumer grade devices. And so this gives them something, you know, a, at least a slight reason to compete. You know, if the, uh, you know, if the next vendor over is three and a half, then, you know, maybe they can get pushed up to four or whatever else so you know in that respect it's useful and also it's never like there's never going to be a perfect scheme for this starting somewhere is probably better than not uh, and then we can refine it and just kind of get people used to the idea of, of considering security at all when they're making a purchasing decision dimitri what do you think I think this is could be a really, really big deal. The devil is going to be in the details of how it's implemented, and I hope that it won't be a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, they're starting with uh, two technologies that are going to be most impactful, routers and home cameras. And, of course, these are very, very different technologies, and I hope what they look at for each one is going to be different. You know, for home cameras, you know, what I want to know is, of course, you know, does it have a default password? Does it have updates? But also, what is the retention policy on the video that's being collected? Um, when I delete that video, does it actually get completely erased? That obviously doesn't apply to home routers. So I hope it's going to be a holistic standard that NIST, I guess, is going to have to come up with um, for uh, these frameworks. But I agree with Adam. This can be really huge because you know, most consumers can't tell one home camera from another. Um, so right now they're deciding it purely based on price uh, or brand name. And this could be a really great way for them to say, wait a second, this is a five, this is a three. Uh, I'm going to go with a five, even if I don't quite know what that means. Um, so it can be really, really important. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I think it's going to be it's going to have most utility for knocking out the zeros, you know, <laughs> like it'll just torpedo them, right? Like I think for most people, three or a five, they don't care, but a zero might make them actually stop, <laughs> you know, and say, ah, uh, maybe I maybe I don't want this thing. That's a, that's an absolute horror show. Now, look, big news out of Australia: a cyber hacker, criminal mastermind. Uh, has been arrested. An absolute mastermind has been arrested in Sydney, Adam, uh, for for conducting an extremely sophisticated uh, campaign. Yes, uh, a 19-year-old man has been arrested by the Australian Federal Police uh, for a very sophisticated online crime, uh, which involved taking the data that had been uh, stolen from the Optus, the telecommunications provider in Australia, uh, and then just like sending people ransom demands to send him like a bank transfer to his personal account. For like a couple of thousand dollars for you know for not leaking their data needless to say uh that did not last particularly long for him yeah i mean i remember when these scam messages went around like i think he only texted like 93 people or something <laughs> but of course you know one of them wound up on twitter and he got the numbers from the uh from the sample set right that was that was published on breach forums and just started texting people asking them to put two grand into his bank account and i saw you know, people on Australian Twitter were getting really excited saying, look, this data is already being used, but it was pretty clear. Like it was Occam's razor suggested that it was the sample set and that it was just some idiot <laughs> being an idiot. Um, and it turns out it was an idiot being an idiot. So he's he's been arrested. But, you know, wow, how did the AFP ever crack this one? Like amazing, <laughs> Must have had right? some serious intelligence support. <laughs> yeah, ASD must have helped him out yeah. on this one. Um, but yeah, just, uh, just absolutely mind-bogglingly dumb. Um, there is movement too on the Optus thing. It turns out like... For most states, this thing wasn't a huge deal because of the introduction of 
card numbers to driver's licenses, uh, with the exception of uh, the states of Queensland and Victoria. So I think there are some licenses are going to be replaced in those states. And there's also an investigation underway from the uh, the Information Commissioner uh, here in Australia to figure out like why they were storing some of this stuff that they clearly didn't need from a business purpose. And I think, you know, ultimately, I think we dodged the worst of what could have happened here uh, with the with the Optus um Incident, and I think we're also going to wind up with executives paying a lot more attention to what it is they're storing and why. So I think, really, oddly enough, this Optus thing is going to have turned. It's going to turn out to be a near miss that actually improves things. Ah, uh, now we're going to move into our crypto lulls uh, section. Uh, these next two stories do prove that comedy is just tragedy plus blockchain. And uh, yeah, there was a big um, uh, uh, theft from a Binance-linked blockchain. And it's one of those ones that was sort of unfolding real time on Twitter and everyone was watching it and sort of, you know, either either crying, weeping salty tears or just having a, a good laugh. But yeah, someone exploited some vulnerability in a something called a token hub, um, <laughs> which is some sort of cryptocurrency bridge. And they stole all this money and started like sending it around and, you know, tumblers, mixers, cross chain, chain hopping and whatever. And um, I think when the dust settles, uh, it settled uh, something like 100 million bucks missing. Is that about right, Adam? Yeah, yes, they had initially nicked something like 500 mil, but it only managed to get, a, you know, 100 of that uh, off the Binance-controlled parts of the of the chains. Uh, and so, yeah, but still, like, watching someone essentially live-tweet a half-billion-dollar bank robbery, yeah. like, that would be wild. Like, I mean, you'd, you'd make a whole TV miniseries about that if that happened, but no, this is just every day in, in comedy world, as you say. Yeah, and we got another story here from a uh, what I assume is a sort of crypto-themed uh, website called The Block, uh, where someone is clogging up the Zcash blockchain with a spam attack. So they're just like, yeah, spamming the blockchain. And, you know, it's a great thing. Is like once you put stuff on the blockchain, it's there forever. Yes, it actually reminded me of the in the very early days of Bitcoin where someone was like sticking the like iCar antivirus test string uh, in transactions that would go on the blockchain <laughs> so that people's AV would quarantine their wallet dot that or whatever. Uh, so that was that was good and fun. Um, but yeah, in this case, uh, they're just like doing size based denial of service. So sending very big transactions, which doesn't cost an attacker very much in this particular blockchain. Uh, and then that's resulting in the ability of the network as a whole uh, to be able to process transactions being being integrated and you know that could just be trolling that could be because you know as this is an anonymity focused one you know maybe there's some kind of attack where having a majority of nodes operating the network gives you some advantage or, or something like that we don't really know what's going on but either way it's funny <laughs> uh comedy. Hey, uh, I wanted to talk quickly about a talk from Alberto Rodriguez and Eric Hunstad that they did at B-sides Augusta uh recently I found it a really interesting talk because basically the idea is um, taking blue team tools and packaging them up and kind of using them as malware, right? And and to do this in, in uh, to bypass the sort of execution control part of EDR and endpoint protection. I sent this talk, and, and my favorite example that they used is Splunk, right? Because the Splunk agent you know, you can get a binary from Splunk signed by Splunk that has like a WMI handler built into it, right? So if you can trick someone into like running Splunk for you, you can kind of <laughs> use it as malware. You just need to configure a Splunk server somewhere in like AWS or whatever and, and away you go. Now, I found this I found this really interesting because when I look at stuff like this, I'm often thinking about it from a, pres you know, through the, through the lens of uh, someone who's a fan of like Airlock Digital and they would protect people against this sort of thing unless that customer happened to also be a Splunk shop, in which case, like, this is this is kind of <laughs> getting into the very hard territory, right? Um, I mean, obviously, the solution here would be for companies like Splunk to stop making such dangerous agents, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, Adam, you had a chance to have a look at this talk. What did you think of it? Uh, I actually really liked it. Uh, taking the concept of of living off the land bins, which we've seen people use in yeah, you know, this is like BYO stages. lol bins, but from other vendors, not Microsoft. Yeah, right? yeah. but also like e extending the idea of using lol bins to the whole attack chain, right? Yeah. Rather than just using it for for you know persistence mechanisms or initial code execution, like extending it to building your entire C two out of Splunk. Um, or you know, out of you know OS query or whatever other systems and tools are are available, and as you say, in use in the environment, even better. And, and I mean, this is a thing that 
you know, I guess I have used it in the past. Like, what, there was some computer associates product where they're like generic network transport thing they used let you make connections backwards through the firewalls. And and you know, in there's many environments where the tools that you could live off the land with give you everything you need. And it's really just is the target important enough to build your tool chain? You know, kind of bespoke for their environment. But the idea that there is enough general purpose software. And I remember how excited everyone was when PowerShell dropped, that this was the, the future of everything. We had a few good years. Um, so it's just, it's a great concept. It makes a whole bunch of sense. It makes Defender's life is difficult. Um, and also does poke a little bit of fun at, you know, the attack simulation that is then actually just not simulation. It's just being used by attackers. And, and Cobalt Strike obviously has been a victim of that success, which kind of makes my trade you know the people in my in my line of work feel a little bit weird you know a little bit self-licking ice cream going on here when yeah. we're building the tools that are that are then being used by attackers and we've gone you know life imitating art full circle so that part of it is a little bit on the nose yeah and uh dimitri i know you also had a look at this and you're like well okay that's all well and good to get execution of like a splunk agent or whatever but as soon as you try to do something with it the edr should at least you know if someone's watching your edr they should at least detect when someone's doing something once they've got a foothold even if it's with a you know signed legit blue team tool yeah guys i may be very jaded here as someone who has seen hundreds of billions of execution events coming from endpoints every single day there is a ton of agents like this that allow remote executions that we would see literally thousands of times an hour. So I was wholly unimpressed that someone discovered yet another agent. Um, and the idea that this is gonna stump EDR, I think is a little bit misguided because mo uh, what is modern EDR? As, as, as one of the guys that kind of invented one of the earliest uh, EDR agents out there, I can tell you that EDR is basically a collection tool, right? It's about recording trying to record almost everything that's going on in the endpoint, feeding into some hopefully cloud-based centralized dashboard, and then having both algorithms, but also most importantly, people, the MDR service that came right after EDR is really, really important because you have people reviewing these types of events and they're looking for suspicious activity. So for example, if you see your Splunk agent dumping credentials and doing lateral movement, you know, that's really, really bad. And I don't care if it's a Splunk yeah. agent or XYZ EXE that's doing that. That's still really, really bad. And that's how modern EDR works combined with the MDR service. And that's why these types of techniques are not really going to stop um, a good shop with a good service, a good, good technology uh, that's recording all the stuff. I mean, I guess, I guess for me, it's like it gets past the EPP bit. Right, so you're actually you're actually going to well, get EPP a doesn't work. EPP doesn't work. All right, okay, so we agree on that, right? Because I've always said too, like EDR is really good for monitoring, but like for the for the prevention part, like that's why I've turned into a you know complete evangelist for allow listing. Yeah, prevention does not work. Everyone in the industry that knows uh, just about anything knows that it's very easy to get around virtually any agent that's doing prevention. It doesn't mean that it's useless because you know a lot of run of the mill attacks you want to stop because yeah. if you're not stopping them, you'll just get swamped with a million alerts that you have to respond to. But this idea that, oh my God, I found another bypass around EPP. I mean, f for God's sakes, there's millions of them. So good for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the point though is that, that you're saying is that you're kind of, in this scenario, you are kind of relying on the monitoring staff to actually flag this stuff. And I, I, I worry that you might be perhaps a tiny bit overconfident there, uh, Dimitri. And Adam, I know you've had experience running Riot as a pen tester through shops that are using modern EDR, presumably feeding telemetry back to um, MDR companies. Like what's the experience been like over the years with that? And, you know, has it got harder? I mean, it absolutely has got harder. And if you're going up against a team that is, you know, well-trained, well-resourced, well-funded, um, and has the time to go and investigate and respond properly, then it is hard. But m most of our experiences, you know, is even when we do get snapped and when you, you you see people open tickets and start investigating, that then the onwards response, you know, gets handed off to people that, you know, don't necessarily have the experience or, you know, the integration between a, a response, you know, managed response vendor and the downstream customer, you know, that part is slow and not necessarily well drilled and the overall result tends to be it's a thing that you can you know even when you do get snapped that you can kind of dance around the response you can, you can outrun them 
Yeah, yeah, and you know, obviously for pen testers, you know, we're not aiming to be there for all time. So, like, we don't have as much focus on persistence, which is a great way to get snapped. Uh, so, we are, you know, much more YOLO about staying in memory and not necessarily having a way back in because we don't have to survive so much. Uh, so, you know, in that respect, not a hundred percent representative of, of real attackers. But yeah, just in the real world, you know, in mid-tier enterprise, uh, you know. Everyone is tired and swamped with alerts and, you know, people's playbooks for response. Are, Let's just re-image the machine and get on with life. And, you know, it, you know, when you've got an adversary that wants to survive, then, yeah, you can, you can dance. So you would write this, you would write this uh, Splunk, uh, Splunk technique? I mean, it'd buy you, it'd buy you some comedy and certainly I, I, I'd love to use it just because the reporting would be fun uh, yeah. and, and seeing the, the crestfallen look on the people who paid, you know, the very, very bargain basement price for Splunk, uh, then seeing it used <laughs> would just be, you know, kind of, it, it tickles the schadenfreude bone. Yeah, yeah. Dimitri, you had something else to add there? Well, Adam is absolutely right. I mean, the, the bane of my existence in prior life was actually not detecting the activity, but getting the customer to do something about it and getting them to do something about it quickly. Nothing worse than detecting a really cool intrusion, you know, on a Saturday morning and finding out that there's no one around at the customer site to deal with it till Monday and uh, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good. <laughs> so Adam is absolutely right. That's where things fail and speed kills. Speed kills. There we go. Uh, now, just before we run, there's two little bugs. Adam and, uh, and I are going to talk about one of them is CVE 2022 34689. Now this one patched by Microsoft completely under the radar, but it's a bug reported to Microsoft by GCHQ in partnership with NSA and it's a f***ing doozy. <laughs> yeah, this is a bug that, from a very limited write-up, suggests that with a crafted X509 certificate, you can bypass certificate checking, like in, in, the, in the operating system's validation of certificates, which like code signing and client-side authentication. And like, I haven't seen a practical example of, of exactly what the bug is or how you make the magic certificates or, or whatever it is. But like the fact that it's the year 2022 and we have cert validation bugs. No, it's a, a main... it's a spoofing bug. Like it's using existing certificates. Like, so here's the fact, right? <laughs> what is the nature of the spoofing? An attacker could manipulate an existing public X509 certificate to spoof their identity and perform actions such as authentication or code signing yeah. as the targeted mm. certificate. I mean, mm. that doesn't sound like what you want in your OS really, you know? I mean, that, that, that sounds like kind of what cert checking and, uh, you know, code authentication uh, is kind of meant to do is that's but like everybody's, been, job, everybody's been too busy kicking fortinet this week to notice that one <laughs> everyone, right? so. everyone loves kicking fortinet but yeah like cert validation bugs not good yeah uh, and there's and one in um, the, there's one in uh, macos as well right yeah there's a bug in uh, in the core trust like cert framework as uh, validation framework as well that basically meant that you could bypass macos code signing for like the last four years which uh, maybe i'm reading it wrong that's that's what it's the researchers seem to be saying that's also not that's like, like two mainstream operating systems having bugs in their code signing in the year 2022 just like what are we doing with our lives how can it how can it be this way <laughs> and yeah not much uh coverage versus you know all of the other stuff that's going on in the world it's terrible and yeah, look, uh, we don't really have time to discuss it, but I'm going to include a link in uh, this week's uh, show notes to a write-up from Catalan on Risky Business News about a crew uh, believed to be from Brazil that did like this really sophisticated NPM infiltration and got a whole bunch of like malicious packages published so that they could do stuff like eventually sell i think the result of this is they could sell fake instagram followers and like boost their discord or something just like another yet another <laughs> example of people doing really cool hacks yeah. and just like having just really dumb ideas like using them for dumb stuff basically the, kid, but, the um, kids are all right <laughs> the kids are all right but guys that is actually it for the news uh big thanks to both of you for joining us and um yeah i look forward to doing uh doing it again with uh both of you soon thanks again for having me thanks pat That was Adam Boileau and Dmitry Alperovich there. Big thanks to them for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with HD Moore, the creator of Run Zero, uh, formerly known as Rumble Network Discovery. 
Run Zero is the tool you can use to figure out what's on your network. It's a scanner that doesn't require creds to do anything. You just let it loose on your network and it brings back all sorts of amazing information. And once you have that information, you can do stuff like plug Run Zero into your EDR and see install gaps. You can let it run loose in your cloud environments and it'll tell you what you have there. Uh, and as you'll hear, it can even take the fingerprinting information from your vulnerability scanning tools and draw uh, uh, more conclusions from that information than those tools do. Uh, and they've even done uh, an Active Directory integration so you can see which users use which asset. Uh, it's all very awesome stuff, as you would expect. Here is HD Moore. We're finding out that there's huge gaps between uh, different security controls across the environment. So a lot of folks will think, hey, we've got EDR on every desktop or Defender, and then we find out that they don't. And their bone scanner is only covering maybe 30% of their on-prem assets, and the rest are um, not covered at all. So the more of these integrations we add and the more fingerprinting we work we do on top of the integration data, more able to identify security controls gaps and uh, lots of other surprising kind of uh, side effects of kind of organic growth of security within organizations. You know, we've long heard about like install gaps and things like that. I mean, I am surprised to hear that you've got customers where only 30% of their stuff was covered by Vuln scanning. That seems um, like surprising even to me. But what else, what else can you kind of observe from pulling this stuff in together, right? Because there's not really many companies that do that, right? That actually pull in these different data sets and then sort of correlate them and see that they don't quite add up to what they should. Yeah, there's definitely a few companies that will pull in third-party integrations and compare them all and say what correlates, what doesn't. I think we take it a step further because we have our own data source, which is our own internal scanner, which finds lots of great stuff. But then we also do the fingerprinting of the third-party data. So if you have a vulnerability scanner that says, hey, this machine is running Linux 2.4 to 2.6, um, that's all the Vuln scanner is going to tell you. We'll actually tell you, hey, it's a Roku appliance. It's running this version. The hardware was built in 2018. It's connected to this network switch. And we do that even without rescanning it, just by pulling the data from the third-party Vuln scanning platform and then re-fingerprinting it and reprocessing internally. So our goal there is to really make the sum of the data more valuable than the individual parts. Um, and we're finding just really bizarre stuff out there where, um, especially in the kind of mid-market to like small enterprise, you see partial coverage, mostly because of price. Um, Folks just don't want to buy a license for every single thermal server they have or cover every IP that could possibly be in the organization. So over time, especially as you know, organizations kind of organically grow, you see someone will buy a license for one tool for one part of the organization and completely be blind to the rest of it. Mm. Now, I just want to pick you up on something interesting that you just said there, which is that you're re-fingerprinting the data from like Vuln scanners and you're finding stuff that the people who created the Vuln scanners aren't finding is, I mean, that's, you, you seem to be saying they're not doing a very good job with their fingerprinting there, HD. Well, the idea is a Vuln scanner tells you about your vulnerabilities. They're not telling you that they're going to do a great job of identifying your hardware platform. That's what we do, right? So we feel like we're able to provide a lot more context about assets. Even if the only data source we have is a third-party data source, we can still do a much better job of telling you what those assets are, how long have they been there, how are they connected, how are they related. I, I guess you're just pulling in some more value out of that, the data that they're already collecting. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, there's a lot of things you have to go. It's a little bit wonky because you may see a info level vulnerability saying, um, you know, here's the banner from the service. And that doesn't mean anything at all. It's the vulnerability scanner. But to us, it means the world. It means we can then, you know, slice it up and say, OK, it's this host name and this version with this firmware on this machine connected this way because we can peel all that out of like the host name or some reflected banner data we get. So it's just a matter of just going a little bit deeper with the data. Uh, a similar effort is after we added coverage for all of the three major cloud platforms, we started building a huge fingerprinting database of all the different AMIs and OS and disk images out there. So now when we pull in and say, hey, this machine's running this disk image, we can also say, and it's Ubuntu 18.04, and it's from this vendor, and it was released on this date, and it hasn't been patched to this level. So we're able to get uh, pretty far down in the weeds in terms of what those individual disk images are above and beyond just, hey, it's this AMI ID. It's funny because, I mean, this is something we've spoken about before in, in these slots, right? But you did start off as a network scanning company, but these days it seems more about integrations, right? And just grabbing data that people already have lying around because they've got various, you know, IT functions like Vuln scanning and, and whatever, and just, you know, getting that into one place. Absolutely. And it's important to do both, though. If you just do integrations, um, you're limited to what your customer knows that they have and what they've purchased licensing and coverage for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, um, it, it almost reminds me of what NDR vendors say about network data um, and network metadata and stuff, which is that it's, and they all use this term and they all think it was only them who thought of it, but it's um, ground truth. Definitely some of that, which is like, you know, product case is you've got this many devices, product B's got a different set of devices. Let's actually go scan them and tell you what's there. So yeah. it helps to actually just get some like real world, like here's actually what responded to the network as opposed to trying to just correlate third party databases or CMDBs. Yeah, it's like sticking your head out the window of your truck depot and actually counting the number of trucks. 
Absolutely. <laughs> More or less, right? Like that's where the ground truth element comes into it. Now, one thing that is a pretty big change that you've made to the product recently is you're actually pulling in user data, right? So you're pulling in data from like Active Directory, LDAP, right? And Azure AD, and you're able to sort of um, uh, map out the relationships between users and assets. That is actually going to be quite useful, I'd imagine, to a lot of people. It's definitely fun coming from a like red team pendester background and starting to finally ingest uh, Azure AD and uh, internal LDAP AD data. Because from that perspective, you look at it from like, well, how can I compromise these things? Where are the admins? But from our perspective right now at Run Zero, it's very much like, where is this asset? Uh, what users connected to it? Is it on network? Is it off network? How long has it been off network? When was the password last changed? There's all this like really interesting stuff you can do with the asset inventory level, which I think a lot of folks who are used to staring at AD data in the context of our pen test or red team or security audit don't really care about that stuff as much, but we definitely do from an asset inventory side. Uh, we've been helping one of our large hospital customers try to figure out where all their stuff is. And so they know everything in Azure AD, or in this case, uh, on-prem AD, has at least one entry. Now they're trying to figure out where the heck is it? Is it on a customer's house? Is it in the cloud someplace? Is it in you know a VPN link to some other small site or branch? And so using the um, uh, AD information is kind of a starting point to figure out what does the total possible coverage look like, and then trying to go find all those things. And you also get value from the inverse of that, which is how many assets do we find that have nothing to do with the AD at all? They were just deployed in the network that no one knows anything about. So it's been really helpful both for figuring out where all the managed assets went and to figure out which assets are unmanaged on the local network. One thing that I've noticed which is interesting is there's a bunch of these companies that have sprung up over the years that do what they call like uh, external you know, attack surface measurement, right? And you've got your your sort of insurance industry adjacent ones that'll give a risk score based on a domain or whatever. Um, and then you've got ones that are targeted more towards security operations where like if you accidentally expose a API endpoint, that's a relevant recent example. Um, you know, you might get some sort of alert or whatever. Um, but I'm also increasingly seeing, you know, companies like yours actually starting to do this as well because it did always seem a bit strange that you would have two different sort of asset discovery platforms, one for internal, one for external. Now, of course, you know, you've done the part where you plug into the cloud service APIs and, you know, get to enumerate all of the assets that are being run through, you know, the official, uh, you know, corporate AWS accounts or whatever. But you are starting to now look at looking for that unexpected stuff that tends to pop up that's attached to an organization. Like, are you building that yourself or are you again relying on third-party data for that? Oh yeah, there's definitely two parts of it. For kind of the basic discovery of like pop in a domain name and find me all my potential host names that are on the internet. Uh, we license bulk data, then build our own API server and then query our internal API server for it. So we're not leaking third-party, you know, uh, queries from our customers to third parties or anything like that as far as building it out. That's just a quick way to say, like, you know, starting off the domain name, can I, what can I find about my organization? What I've been finding really interesting with our external scanning and external um, inventory capabilities is that when you do an internal scan, oftentimes we can find the external IP of internal assets. We can identify that this router is actually multi-homed, it's got an IP, this device um, has a you know WAN card in it, and you're, you know, we've got a laptop with a mobile card that's actually connected directly to the internet exposed, but also on your corporate internal network. So one of the really neat things about the new capabilities of Run Zero, which would be able to run like a hosted scan externally or bring in census or Stroden data, is we can automatically take all the data that has a public IP, all the assets with an internal with a public IP in your organization, whether they're from the cloud, whether it's EDR asset um, that's externally connected uh, through a home network or something internal we found with an external IP, and then automatically bring in external scan data from census from Shodan or actively scan it with our own hosted scanning infrastructure. And it's a great way to say like, this machine looks like it's publicly exposed, but is it actually exposed? both from yeah. the perspective of Shodan and uh, Census, as well as from the own uh, Run Zero hosted cluster. So the you know Census and other folks like them, they kind of boil the whole, whole ocean and say, here's what probably belongs to you. We don't do that. We just say, if you know your IP range, if you know your ASN number, if you know uh, your domain name, we'll find some related assets. But of course, you can always use this tool like Census to get a list of assets, pop them into Run Zero, and then correlate it. Uh, we really try to help folks bring context for external assets they already know about today, and then do some light discovery around DNS. Light discovery. I love that. That's a new term. Um, so the user stuff, uh, sorry to you know jump back to that, but is that in the product already? Yep. We shipped support for uh, LDAP-based Active Directory, which basically uses your deployed Explorer to query your internal AD, uh, as well as our Azure AD stuff, which talks directly to the Microsoft endpoints. 
Um, we were really careful when building this too. A lot of vendors just like to suckle the data they can back into the Plex cloud, and we do not do that, especially with user data. Um, we have a very finite list of fields that we'll pull back in to make sure we're not, um, you know, pulling in sensitive fields, cache passwords, things like that that tend to be. So in you're your not going to replicate server. everybody's ID into your own cloud, right? That make, that kind of seems sensible. Absolutely. I mean, we bring the minimal we need in to do the mapping and stuff, but we really care about the assets and the relationships. We don't want all the other data. You know, we don't want to have data in the platform that is not relevant to asset inventory. Yeah, and what are some of the use cases that you're finding people are most keen on with that, with all of that? I'm just curious to hear a bit more about that. It depends on the perspective. For the red team folks that have used the platform, we got a bunch of quick questions which like, hey, can I find out which ones have machine accounts that haven't been locked yet? Or tell me about users who haven't uh, changed their password in the last year. Just kind of your basic like you know user hygiene stuff to figure out which users may be risky or not risky. Um, but for our you know typical kind of asset inventory and security uh, response team customers, they just care about where that asset is. Like, okay, here's a machine that supposedly was added to AD two years ago. We saw it once in CrowdStrike three weeks ago. We saw it again on the Wi-Fi network last week. And it really helps you to try to keep track of that asset as it's moving around the network, as people are going to work and back uh, to the office and going back home again or traveling for conferences. It's a great way to just keep track of all that stuff. So we definitely look at the AD asset side really is just kind of the uh, the starting point for mapping out the total possible assets in AD and then the user relationships to figure out who, what user is actually responsible for that asset from, you know, both the direct, you know, authentic, you know, interactive user as well as possibly the business owner and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's that three those three categories, right? Where you got your business owner, you got your admin, and you got your user, and it's kind of nice to be able to line those things up in a in a coherent way. Yeah, we're getting there. We have the the direct user in place today with the new stuff, and then we're looking at building out those other ownership tracking tools going forward. Now, look uh, before we go, HD. Uh, it's it's always good to get some some case studies, and you and I were having a bit of a chat about one recently where you were able to actually do some really interesting work at a telco, which you know, perhaps not surprising, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, has a pretty network centric view, or likes to have a pretty network centric view of their environment. Like, just walk us through that one. Sure thing. Uh, one thing that's really fun with Run Zero is we go a little bit deeper than your typical like IP scan. We're not just going to tell you, hey, this IPv4 system has these ports open. We also do things like automatic link local IPv6 discovery. Uh, you, you don't have to you know, turn anything on, it's on by default. Uh, and that actually helps you find a lot more information about assets internally. Uh, we go a step further and also do like full-blown SNP enumeration of internal um, devices. So things like network switches, routers, even your printers. And some of that's to be able to provide more context for other assets in the network, like telling you the MAC address of a Windows machine in the same segment as a printer. But we can also tell you things about the layer two topology itself. Um, which switch is responsible for what VLANs? Uh, what VLANs are on the network that you haven't scanned? Um, we do a lot of work into unmapped assets. So essentially, if the switch tells us that it sees a MAC address that we couldn't find through the active scanning side, we know there's a gap somewhere. We know it's either a VLAN that hasn't been scanned yet or an ACL between the scan source and the destination. So it's a lot of a, it's a fun puzzle. It's a lot of detective work of trying to figure out, well, how come I can't see this network? Where is this network deployed? Why does this switch know about a VLAN when it calls it VLAN 80, but this other switch calls a different IP network VLAN 80? Um, you may have two overlaying networks that are totally different. So trying to untangle the kind of complicated side of, uh, of layer two and layer three networking and all the fun overlays and VXLAN stuff these days is, is a lot of fun, something we try to help out with with Run Zero. And for our large telecom customers, um, it's definitely something that helps set us apart from your typical either scan or integration-based tools. All right. Well, there's a few uh, telco listeners. I'm guessing their ears pricked up a bit during uh, during that. Uh, HD Moore, thanks a lot for joining us. That was really interesting stuff. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure. That was HD Moore there with a chat about what is new in Run Zero. If you haven't played with it yet, I recommend you do. And that is it for this week's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Seriously Risky Business in our Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.